Hello and welcome to This Is Important, the podcast that helps the unheard be heard. I'm your host, Mira Reftopoulos, and in each episode, we will be covering everything from race, politics, sex, and feminism. Welcome to This Is Important. Today, I'm going to be talking to Chai San, Amber, and Delta about their personal experiences growing up mixed race. I wanted to do this um, because, as I was saying, I feel that with everything happening in the world, I feel like there's groups of people who are sort of left out of conversations that affect them as well. Um, yeah. So I really wanted to do this and sort of get your perspective because only you yeah. can speak to your journey and your viewpoints on this, you know? Yeah. Um, so, um, so like mixed race babies are often fetishized online and stuff. Like you see that there are lots of groups um, on like Instagram and Facebook. Um, why do you think there's such a fascination with um, mixed race babies? especially since the turn of the millennium. Yeah, I think it's, um, again, I think it's this idea of, I think it's culture as well. I think it's um, music culture. I think it's um, video culture, film culture. I think it's it's a shame that um, being, like seeing mixed race people and the idea of being mixed race mm-hmm. has um not really been I wouldn't say it's been accepted I think it's become really trendy and fetishized so before you had like in like 500 years ago in the slavery period mixed race the idea of mixed race was seen as something really taboo and something frowned upon something is being very disgusted it's like the blending of two races black and white that should be separate and in the name of the mulatto was um given to a mixed race person and um there's always been this idea of um, mixed race and the, the joining of two different ethnicities as being something seen to be um, as something almost sort of um, idolised in a way, but something that's like taboo that you can't really, it's sort of out of reach. It's, it's in a way sort of, um, it's like something we want, but we can't have. It's like the da- something dangerous. And from that, it's then become fetishised. So, Today, in today's society, I wouldn't say that the idea of a mixed-race individual, a mixed-race baby, is totally accepted, because I don't think it's not, because the idea of mixed-race being accepted still has its fundamental problems, because we still have, you know, um, I've, me personally, I've encountered um, rejection from Black people and white people. When I received rejection for being mixed-race from Black people, it was, oh, um, you know, you think you're too nice or you think you're too good. Or I even said, like, there was a black woman who said to me, um, you know, mixed race people are, are stealing all all the black men. For some reason, we are turning the heads of, of black men. And that's something that's that's a really bad thing. Um, yeah. And I just, it makes me very angry because there's so much segregation and there's so much opposition from within black society. You know, there's anger in that sense and you know I in some regards didn't feel totally accepted by my white counterparts and my black counterparts and that made me really upset in particular with you know my black peers because I thought 
well in society when I go you know when people look at me yes they will see color and they will identify identify me as a person of color so initially when I thought I, I turned to the black community I turned to my black peers for a sense of belonging and a sense of guidance and for some people I didn't get that I didn't get it from them and it made me very very upset I can understand it from like the white perspective because there is that ingrained sense of inherent racism and that is to be mm. expected um but I thought that as times have changed and like as people we had naturally progressed um it was it was incredibly disheartening to see that there was still this rejection that I faced from from both cultures from both those ethnicities um and just to so I don't want to like divulge from the question that you asked but um again like I feel like being mixed race um again it's this idea of being fetishized um I mean by both the black community and both the white community I remember when I went to a predominantly white middle class university in the south west of England there weren't many people of color there and I just remember being at a freshers event and um people putting their hands in my hair and I just would you know turn around and say well what are you doing oh we, we like your hair you know it, it's really sort of um it's sort of ethnic uh, it's very um it's it's like vibrant it's very noticeable and in my mind back then I thought well yes okay I, I see it as a sort of compliment but I'm very sort of put off by the idea of you feeling like you can actually reach out and grab my hair and touch it without my permission it's the sense of entitlement again um and that was really infuriating for me and I had another person at university grab my hair and say it felt as though it was like candy floss and he, he'd never touched a black girl's hair before as if that's yeah. something you know, if, as if that's something that should be like celebrated, that it's like a carnival or like a circus or whatever, yeah. like, you know, like a caged creature of some kind. And it's yeah. like, oh my God, I have to like touch this and like find out like what it feels like. And it's like, yeah, some people feel like it's okay, you know, and it's like, you wouldn't do that to anybody else. So why do you feel it's okay to like do that to me? Yeah. Um, Delta Chaisen, have you ever felt this sort of fetishization of like, a mixed race person um like my experiences experiences contrasts a bit to yours amber i i grew up in portugal in the south of portugal was raised by my dutch mother and i went to portuguese school and like black people throughout my um like school career have always been a minority and I've actually never related to that minority because I was raised by my Dutch mother. I was raised as a Dutch person. Yeah. And culturally, I feel Portuguese. And that's about, I, I guess that is, has to do with like the food, the religion. Not that I'm religious, but I do relate to a lot of the Portuguese cultural tropes. Um, I don't feel like I was ever excluded by an, either race. I would say that I never felt like I belonged, but that wasn't ever because of overt um, interactions, I guess. Mm. So when you say, Amber, that you felt uh, fetishized by Black men, I do relate to that as well. Um, or was it, you said the opposite, maybe, you were rejected by Black men? Uh, it was fetishized, I was fetishized by both Black men and white men. 
and I felt as though in regards to um, the female black community, I felt a sense of rejection there. I felt a sense of um, like I wasn't accepted um, as such. Um, and that that really disheartened me. It, made, it really upset me because it's it's a struggle already with, you know, the white community and, you know, establishing your mark there. And I felt as though, you know, being raised by an African, you know, black mother, you know, I I have a very strong link um, to like my Nigerian heritage and my Nigerian mm-hmm. culture. I, you know, I embrace that. I'm very proud of my Nigerian heritage. And um, so I've grown up with very strong black women in my life. Mm-hmm. And when I got out into the school environment, I didn't feel as though the, you know, the black girls I went to school with accepted me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that made me kind of think very that led me into a state of confusion because I was trying to find you know a, a balance or an explanation as to why I wasn't being accepted because you know I've been raised by strong black women in my life um and I've been you know I'm, I'm fully embracing of African culture and the enrichness Richard in the richness of it and you know going out and being rejected it just it put like it was a whole stumbling block for me. It was a whole sort of. It was very hard to comprehend and kind of weave my way around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a really similar experience. You know, I think also um, the the racial stereotyping around Southeast Asian women generally as kind of um, sex objects, um, just in Western culture. Um, is huge so then you combine that with being mixed race um like i know i've had encounters especially with white men sort of weirdly white american men where the assumption was that my mother was a prostitute um or was a sex worker so that was the assumption that that's how i came about um and i was and and it's always interesting and like that people don't ask you oh was your or even like oh was your mother this but like oh because it's always a statement oh because your mother obviously was this um which is just like a wild thing to hear when you're 14 <laughs> um and then i think yeah i mean the specialization and it and it comes from all avenues it comes from the asian community comes from the white community comes from the black community comes from um like and then, yeah similarly like when i lived in the philippines um you know i was i lived from the age of 10 to 14 and I had men, 18, 19, follow me around school um, and touch me, like just just get close to me to touch me. Um, and, and I think that's rooted in colorism. Definitely, there's still this, like, you know, the Philippines is hugely colonial in its past and its history. Like we're named for King Philip of Spain, that's where the name of the country even comes from. So we don't even have a national identity that's not, Direct, directly linked to our colonizer so there's a there's just a, 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 a hangover of that and so you know yeah you you are ch- like it was it was weird but then my younger sister was then she was five or six and you'd get chased down streets sometimes by people um wanting to come and whisper in your ear or or that kind of thing. Um, so it could get really like scary and aggressive. 
um, and things like, and I mean, I'm sure you've all experienced as well, well, um, here where like men will step into your path and block your path so you can't move. Um, and that used to happen to me a lot on my way to school, um, in my school uniform. But potentially not helped by the addition of my Catholic girl, my Catholic school, yeah. <laughs> where we were required at the time to wear knee-high socks and pleated skirts. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's a million different things coming in all at once at play here. There's just, like, general sexism, isn't there? There's, like, fetishization of young people. But I think especially with the way, like, I guess the, the fact that there's a huge issue with sex trafficking in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia as well, and that concept and that idea around Southeast Asian women travels, like, massively, and where sometimes um like men's first encounter with a southeast asian woman is on porn or mm -hmm. things like that um you yes i've definitely spent a lot of my younger years sort of dealing with weirdly aggressive sexual advances i feel like even for a patriarchal world <laughs> um and yeah and of course it always being passed up as a compliment always being told that you know sort of men coming at you going Filipinos and women are the most beautiful in the world and you're like slowly trying to edge away um and, and leg it but um yeah it's it's it gives you it gives you a very weird sense of self yeah so it gives you a sense sometimes you like feel like the hot popular girl but also sometimes you just feel like you're walking around with this target on your back yeah. all the time and you can't like go to the toilet like you can't you can't do PE yeah without an audience like yeah yeah so it, it could get really like odd yeah that really resonates with me when you said that you developed a really weird sense of self I think my sense of self growing up was also always kind of based on the rejection of something that I didn't want to be. For instance, being half Dutch Jamaican, the first reaction that you get is like, oh, you must smoke weed. So I rejected that identity quite soon, quite young as well, quite early on in my kind of identity development. And also being half Jamaican, then you have the, oh, Bob Marley must be your king, that must be your religion. Yeah. I, w I didn't relate to that, but it just forced me to position myself in a negation and therefore rejecting that part that could possibly be my identity. But very early on, I never really explored that, you know? Yeah. And then having, uh, my parents having split up quite early, I think I was five, and I have quite, uh, af like quite curly hair. And then my mother had to treat my hair suddenly because my dad wasn't in the picture anymore. And the first thing she did was shave it off and then we started relaxing my hair i think i was six so that kind of um kind of very personal relationship with your own hair it was kind of taken away from me because i suddenly had straight hair that i could manage easily or with the products that are readily available everywhere but you weren't able to have that connection which yeah. i'm sure had yeah. exactly so like, I would say that my black side of identity is very underdeveloped because having grown up in um, a white culture, let's say, and then having been forced to negate parts of a 
culture that I didn't want to belong to. Mm. Like I'm ultimately very not black, I would say, not Jamaican. And it is, I'm not confronted necessarily with that daily, but with everything happening, it is like I am in that gray zone. Like I understand and I don't understand. I relate and I don't relate. Yeah. And um, like when we were talking about fetishization, sorry, I can't pronounce that word. That's really I don't think any of us can. Like I really had to dig deep. I really had to dig deep. And I do remember being very attractive to black men and older men. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe because of my bone structure, like I got a big head, I would say myself, but it's something that's viewed as very mature. So very early on, I was kind of uh, hit on by quite old men and I rejected them for a very long time for that. And, and but also my taste in men, like I for the longest, longest time rejected any attraction to uh, men who were not white. And that's mm-hmm. odd. Like I would be able to dig deeper in that and see maybe there's some interiorized uh, uh, racism there but to what level to what extent is it cultural or to what extent is it racism you know maybe it was the uh, beauty ideals that were passed down on me through my Dutch family or maybe it was like the socialization of disliking this other race because it's beneath you you know it's like it's really in the middle there and it's I've never really looked at the world through the lens of I'm mixed race because I'm just me, I feel like myself, you know, something that I'm me and I'm the only constant in this world that because I'm at the center of it, you know, like everyone yeah, is themselves, right? So I've never really approached any of the problems or issues or discomforts from a race lens. Mm. However, we are being forced now to relate to something, right? To a community and that, that sense of community, like racial community, I've never really had because I've always kind of rejected that from a very young age. Yeah. Touching on what you said um, about growing up and sort of um, in one culture, did you guys, um, Amber and Chaisan, did you grow up with your parents sort of showing you both sides of your cultures, like your, your black culture, your white culture, your Asian culture, your white culture? Did you sort of have that understanding and that, like, did your parents make sure you had had that growing up? Yeah, I mean, I was I was super fortunate because um, my mum was offered a job back in the Philippines uh, when I was ten, and so she decided to take it and to take us with her, mm-hmm. and that meant I got to connect with my culture um, on a whole like level that I wouldn't have otherwise. That like I, you know, before then I didn't speak a word of Tagalog or Filipino. I like yes, no, thank you. That's yeah, you know. Um, and then so I went from that to having to be forced to learn the language from scratch, um, and and speaking it fluently and watching Filipino TV and like all all the kind of learning slang, you know, in in Filipino. And so I was very lucky in that regard. But I think what's interesting is that, like, you, I still found it incredibly difficult to relate to British Filipino culture. So I like related to the British, the white English side of me. Then I related to the kind of like native Filipino part of me, but the kind of, I guess like the immigrant part of me Mm. was like, I didn't know what that was. Like I still don't. So I'm very lucky in that. Like, yes, my parents, you know, my parents were both. I think my dad didn't really, because I think he was like, 
you're here in London. So you're here and you're immersed in that culture. But I guess growing up in East London, which is a very multicultural place to grow up, and um, and my mum is very, very um, active in the Filipino immigrant community. Yes, it was like super present. But I still think when you're growing up, especially as a teenager, like there's that basic thing of like everything your parents do is like not cool and you don't don't want to get involved. So because my dad was super active, I also, and it's like you're saying about that assumption, um, they'll say about like you smoking weed, that like when people go, oh, you must do this or oh, you must do that, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad or right or wrong, you go, no, that's not me. That's not me. Because I think one of the big things I noticed when I was raised that people love to tell you what you are, to inform you of what you are. Oh, you're English. Oh, you're actually white. Oh, you're, no, you're black. Oh, no, you're Asian. Oh, you eat this, don't you? It's never a question. It's always a statement. It's always like, this is what you are. And people want to put you in whatever box makes them feel most comfortable because they can sort of, you just about maybe fit. And then you find yourself in this box that you're kind of like, I I guess, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's, um, yeah, and it's, I, I, you're saying that they're like it becomes much more healthy for you to think of yourself as just you mm-hmm. as an individual and um, it's a lot more freeing yeah it's very emancipating i remember as well when i used to go to the hairdresser multiple times a year to relax my hair and it was obviously at a um african hairdresser uh, they were mostly angolan or cape verdian angolan cape Verde being portuguese colony or ex-colony so I remember them uh, on multiple occasions, my hairdressers being surprised that I didn't speak Creole because obviously for them, I was more black than white and I was at a black hairdresser's. Like, oh, you don't speak Creole? That's weird. Your mom never taught you. No, my mom's Dutch. Oh, what's your dad? Jamaican. Oh, yeah, well, that changes things. But the assumption that yeah. you are like them and then the realization that you're not, it goes both ways because at the same time, I realized that I wasn't like them. I did have their hair and I would do did go to their hairdresser often and um, but I was not them I was not part of their conversation or I couldn't participate in their conversation and so throughout I've always been confronted with what I'm not you know and it is based on assumptions and um it I'm not sure if it shaped me as I am now but it does kind of affect you as a child you know it just puts you in a bit of an outsider position outside looking in like I've always felt like I didn't belong yeah, I can relate to um, both both arguments, really. Um, my experience is it's slightly different, though, because um, my, my dad is white and white Irish, and he's also part Dutch as well, and my mum's full Nigerian. And um, in my dad's family, me and my grandma, my, my dad's mum, we trace our ancestry all the way back to the 16th century. And, um, like, my mum is the first person of, uh, who isn't white to, to have married into that family. Mm. And um, I remember my mum telling me it, it was incredibly daunting for her. Um, and um, uh, her mum, my, my grandma, my mum's side, uh, was telling my mum all these things about um, the racism that she's going to encounter um, how it's going to impact your children if you have children. So she was fed all these sort of 
all these um, preliminary negative ideas and to some degree it was off-putting you know her marrying my dad but in the end you have to you know I think love triumphs everything and when my mum met my dad's family um luckily they were really really accepting of her um they had a traditional Nigerian wedding so they flew my dad's family her family they flew all, all over they went to Nigeria they had a traditional wedding they had a traditional ceremony they all wore traditional Nigerian outfits so there was that blending of cultures and that accepted um sort of like concoction of both cultures which was really happy you know it it made me happy to hear that and it was it also gave some sense of hope to my mom and to her siblings as well Mm. um so yeah I was happy when I heard that um but I do remember when I was young um and you know, my my mom used to take me to um, uh, African Caribbean hair salons to get my hair braided, and um, I do remember when my nan saw my hair braided. My dad's mom saw my hair braided for the first time. She was shocked, and she saw it as a as a form of art and craft in a way. It's like a, a form of like an ethnic craft. Um, she and you know she researched it and she wanted to learn more about it and I remember there's one time she actually came with me to a hair salon and watched to announce to somebody who is black they might see that's quite something quite disturbing or something quite unusual and to some degree I think it is quite unusual but she was just fascinated because you know this is the first time that she's ever encountered in in an intimate level a new culture and she wanted to explore more of that and I remember you know, when I was, because I li- I grew up in a predominantly white middle-class area and there weren't many people of colour around me. And um, I went to, I remember being at, at nursery school as well and um, being the only, you know, person of colour in nursery school. And um, that had a really negative effect on me because that's when I really first encountered racism when I was about four years old. Mm. And um, I had you know a, a boy at the nursery um called me a, a black monkey that was the first time I'd ever encountered that and I remember I had, I had my hair braided as well and my mum used all these really cute um sort of like buns with my hair and you know she used to do really really cute hairstyles I mean he used to tug at my hair and he used to scratch my face and um I remember my grandma picked me up from nursery one day and it was a terrible day because he'd actually, you know, scratched all my face. And she said, oh, he's, you know, who's giving you all these scratches? And I said, oh, there's this this boy at nursery and I don't understand why. Um, And um, she, the next day I came back into nursery and um, he came to attack me again. And I actually ended up, you know, physically punching him in the face, which, which made him cry. Um, And, um, his mum came to collect him and she turned around to me and started arguing with me and she was calling me you know she was using racial terms directed at me and I was four years old and I didn't understand it at all um but she didn't realize that my mum was stood behind me and she had her back turned and so my mum was listening to this woman you know call her child all the names and racial names under the sun and she turned around and defended me and there was a ruthless exchange of words and um afterwards you know the you know it was it was incredibly uncomfortable and I remember sitting in the car being four years old and having to have 
a conversation about racism and race with my mum. It was it was incredibly eye-opening and very disheartening. Um, and it was also, looking back then, I, I felt so much anger towards the boy. Um, but now I don't feel anger towards him. I feel that he had a sense of ignorance because racism is learned. Uh, it's, it's taught and it's learned and you internalise it uh, through being exposed to it. And um, I realised that it's actually the parents and it was the environment that he was in that was influencing him to have all these racist thoughts and racist behaviour. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that's what infuriates me because, you know, nobody's born racist. We're taught racism and uh, it's about unlearning um, those, ra- those, you know, forms of racism. And that the only way we can implement change is through education and um I unfortunately, you know, after having that um, talk about race with my mom, I then went on four years later to encounter a similar incident in an educational environment. I was in primary school, and um, I had a best friend at the time who was she was white, and um, we used to go to each other's houses, and um, you know, I remember one time I went to her house and. Um, you know, she was straightening her hair and, you know, she was saying, oh, um, you know, I, I hate I hate curly hair or I, I, I hate yeah. it when it gets frizzy or, or curly. And I didn't say anything, but in my mind I was thinking, is this directed at me in some way? Or it made me question you know, my own sense of beauty, my own sense of self, you know, as the way that she was saying you have to get all the frizz out, you know, you have to get all the curls out, it needs to be flat iron straight, and I do this every day um, because frizz makes me uncomfortable. There was this idea of frizziness, or, and I would equate that now to a sense of, like, you know, type 4, type 3 hair or afro hair as something being, you know, uh, unacceptable, unprofessional, um, and that, you know, that made me question my own sense of beauty. And... Um, Later on, about a few weeks after, you know, that incident, she turned around to me and said, um, I can't associate with you anymore. I can't talk to you anymore because you're black. And um, that was like a shock. And I remember her saying this in the morning before, you know, we all, the bell rang and we all went into our classrooms for primary school. And I never, ever spoke to her again. So that, what, those words, I remember it clear as days, that stayed in my mind and I never spoke to her again. And then I had a, um, a year went past and it was, I was in the last year of primary school and I was writing, um, our teacher set us a task to write a story uh, about a particular subject. And um, I decided to write a story about that incident in third person and um, using different names. And I don't know why, I don't know what came over me but it was a it was a way of me getting it out. It was a way of me releasing that anger and frustration because it had been embedded and sort of um, hidden uh, within me, and I kind of needed to release it. And I I was very confused about it as well. And I remember writing the story, and I didn't think anything would come out come come about it. Um, and I remember my teacher calling me in and saying, "You know, is this story about you?" And I said, "Oh, yes, it is about me." And she said, I could tell because somebody who's about, you know, 10 years old, how can they write 
this material so about subjects so explicitly mm. and um you know she called the girl in and she denied it and um you know you know i remember some people in my class who were her friends turning around to me and having a go at me and being really angry at me at, at even saying that somebody who was deemed a model student you know a model student would ever be capable of being racist or showing racist behavior so they questioned i felt like my own insanity was being questioned my own integrity was being questioned and my own sense of self was being questioned and like nobody you know in the school you know nobody none of my peers ever showed me any support so that was really degrading that was really upsetting as well because i thought you know i've experienced this racism i've experienced this discrimination and you know i can't confide in anybody about it because um you know they i my integrity will be questioned and uh, that stuck with me a lot that really stuck with me that sense that um i have to validate um my own experiences my experiences aren't worth anything they're not seen as being credible and i think that's one way of you know racism you know one way to say that um you know that there there isn't there isn't an issue with racism or that it's just in your head or you misinterpreted what i said or you didn't understand well if you haven't lived a day in my shoes um, and you haven't experienced my experiences you cannot speak for me and you cannot speak for my own experiences and i think again it it all comes back to this idea of you know again colonialism as well colonialism i think is the core um is at, is at the heart of all this it's again this the stripping of identity the stripping of individuality and um sense of self and kind of de- degrading and um sort of belittling your own experiences and your own personality and it feeds down um it's it kind of strips you physically and mentally of um your own sort of individuality and your own you know confidence as well and i had to find my own confidence uh going into secondary school and dealing with my own problems there and also going into university in a in a predominantly white middle class environment i had to find my own confidence and i had to learn and it was a process and it was a long tumultuous process of me trying to learn and accept myself for who i am and that was really really difficult for me and what what strikes me as well in that story especially the nursery one is like is not even the attitude of the kid or the kid's mum but the fact that you're coming home every other day having been physically attacked by another child in the nursery mm-hmm. and i want to know whether nursery staff are in all of this um 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 whether duty care is to to a child yeah yeah it, it is really bad i looking back i remember having this discussion with my mom and um the the nursery staff were to blame because they overlooked that problem mm. um they completely overlooked it and it is really a safeguarding issue to be honest yeah. and they completely disregarded me they completely overlooked the whole you know the whole the whole incident and um, the whole issue and there by them disregarding it and kind of overlooking it 
it again it, it comes down to me questioning my own sense of self and my own and my own worth um you know is is this to be normalized you know is this to be normalized because if this is a reoccurring incident then surely there isn't a problem or that there, there you know there's some misunderstanding you know you, you know you then start to question your own experiences so yes there yeah there was an in, inherent problem and you know it was a terrible um terrible issue that went on with the nursery with regards to safeguarding mm. um and um yeah they are they are definitely to blame for that yeah yeah because it just strikes me that if they stepped in um and kind of even like not to disregard it but like even if you just put to one side a moment of like calling you racial slurs but just going you've hit a child we yeah. don't hit like that then never reaches your parents because then what happens then is your mother is forced to endure a tirade of racism like as a black woman receiving that from a white woman who's going to stand there and abuse her child she's got to endure her child being abused and then receiving abuse herself and all of that is caused by the nursery staff not doing their job yeah 100% 100% um yeah it is it, it and then my mum I remember my mum telling me that she it's really belittling and it's really disheartening for my mum to tell me that she always knew that she was going to have to have a discussion about race with me, but she never in a million years thought that she'd ha- ever have to have that discussion when I was four years old. Mm-hmm. And that broke her, like that tore her to, to bits completely because she thought that she could shield me for a little while. I could be shielded from those negative experiences. And then, you know, she knew that later on I'd have to have that discussion and I will have to encounter racism, unfortunately. But she never, ever thought that in an environment which is supposed to be deemed a safe environment, like in a, in a nursery, that I'd ever have to experience that and have to actually fight, you know, you know, or, you know, it it wasn't just a mental assault that I endured. It was a physical assault as well. It was the blending of both. And that that tore me to bits you know that that really broke me in terms of you know I, I had massive confidence issues you know massive issues with you know identifying and accepting my own sense of self and, and worth and I again it was a building process of you know making sure that I got to a stage in my life where I felt I didn't need to validate my experiences I didn't need yeah. to seek acceptance from anybody because I am my own individual and um, I speak for myself. My experiences are my own and, you know, that's it, point blank period. Um, nobody can tell me that I am this or I can do this or this, you know, this isn't what happened. This is what happened. You know, I speak for myself. I have my voice. And growing up and, you know, from a young age, having that voice stripped away from me and having that voice questioned does internal damage to you Hmm. um recently i had um a discussion with someone um regarding my being in an interracial marriage my husband's um greek irish half greek half irish um so me being in an interracial marriage and speaking on um, racial issues and things like that if there was a um a sort of 
uh, imbalance or um, whether, I, you know, like if I have the right to speak on it because I'm not in the traditional sort of same race relationship and things like that. Um, and I do find that an ongoing thing I find in a lot of these talks about anti-racism it's like you have to be a specific sort of you know you have to fit within this box um do you feel that way do you feel like your voices aren't as valid like thought to be valid compared to like other people and when it comes to talking about racism and your stance on it I, I think I think it's interesting what I think for me, the big issue is, is actually people just really need to be specific and open about what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. The Black Lives Matter movement is about black people because this is black people being murdered on the streets. You know, mm-hmm. it is black people who are most at risk of losing their lives at any second in this moment. And when you conflate um, anti-blackness and the violence towards black people with the wider anti-racism movement, yes, it's tied in. But I think people should be, you like, you need to be really clear. Like, my experience as a Southeast Asian woman is not the same as that as of a black woman or a mixed race black woman, even. Like, uh, it, it just isn't. And the racism that I experience is different um, and to, to the racism that you experience. And I think that we need to stop um, pushing together. Um, we need to stop squishing together people of colour into this kind of, like, brown mush of, of people. Like, we have to, like, really be open and discuss that this is going... I think also because, because in a way, this movement originates in the US, and the US culturally has its specific issues with racism, and then the UK specifically has, um, like, you know, lots of intersections with that, but also different issues with racism because of its history in India, for example. And then, as you say, in uh, in the Netherlands, there's a whole other history. And people actually need to engage with their colonial yeah. history and their cultural colonial history rather yeah. than take on the US colonial history. Because, yes, we are a part of that. Dutch colonizers went, you know, the, the colonization of the US is rooted in Europe. But the, the, the history of civil rights in the US is a different story to the history of civil rights here in Europe. And we need to stop trying to co-opt something that culturally is a different narrative. So it's not that, like, I I just think we need to acknowledge our places within that because I can't not acknowledge the fact that one of the those police officers that stood by when um, George Floyd was murdered was an Asian man. Yeah. And the other police officer was a mixed race man. Yeah. So we, we can't ignore those things. But my point is, is that like there's a laziness in white supremacy that wants to fix racism immediately. And so if we just like give some black people some jobs, there it is, we've done it. Rather than yeah. engaging in long-term, deep-rooted, systematic issues as they relate to black people, as they then relate to Asian people, as they relate to North African people, as they relate to Middle Eastern people, as they relate to South Asian people and Muslim people and, and, and everyone else that are, you know, we are a global majority. And so we need to stop trying to find quick fix answers because oppression has been built up over centuries 
it will probably take centuries to dismantle. You can't just try. To, I've, ha I've had it said in organisations where we're talking about their issues with white supremacy and going, we want to, we want to get it right. And I'm yeah. just like, there's no such thing. Like the notion of getting anti-racism right is a white supremacist construct. Yeah. The idea that there is a right way to be a human is rooted in the idea of some kind of supreme state of being, which is not true or real or human. So I think that we have to be aware of what we can speak to, of accepting what others' experiences are, believing them, giving them space for that. And being able to discuss, and like it's not a competition. That's yeah. what we like because if we enter into that competition, so like I'm always like aware, like if there are ten seats at a table, right, and there and there are five five seats for non-white people, and we're all here going, oh well, like there were four black people last time, and like only one Asian person, so it's got to be this way. And actually, what we're not noticing is there's always five seats for white people. Yeah. It's, do you see what I mean? So like we're all fighting over these tiny pieces of pie. And while we're looking here, we're not looking over there at the people who just get to sit at the table all day, every day. And I think that's the issue in the same way when you're trying to talk to white supremacy about why racial parity is not taking away things. It's still this idea that you're fighting over seats at a table and just like, just make a bigger table, make more seats, and then no one loses and everyone gains. Mm. Um, and we need to like stop believing in this false sense of competition with each other, be that amongst other minority ethnicities or white people against minorities, because it's all a lie. No, absolutely agree, Chaisan, and um, I do agree with what you're saying in terms of the um, the table and not having this competition, because I personally feel that if, you know, if you win, I win, you know, I have that mentality, and I find that if, if, you, if you go through life having that sort of like, no, only this particular type of person can win in order for me to feel like I've won, you're always going to lose, you know, if we're always competing against each other or always sort of like not understanding and not having these conversations because that's how you learn, that's how you can broaden your, your viewpoint, you know. A lot of old people or older people might never understand, but at the same time, I'm okay with that because I'm going to be very crude here. They're going to die sooner than I will, so... Sooner or later, you know, that outdated view of the world will perish. And that will be kind of a taboo thing to do, to comment on um, someone on racial issues that is on a negative way, you know, instead of on a positive looking forward way. I know what you mean. I used to have a similar point of view. Like, I used to think that everyone around, because everyone around me had that had the same point of view. Everyone around me were, like, liberal and open. So in my mindset, I was like, okay, so everyone's like this. So when we had, like, the first referendum here in the UK for Brexit, I was like, everyone's going to, you know, obviously vote Remain because everyone around me says that that's what they, do you know what I mean? Everyone around me has that point of view. But I was shocked to find that there were people who were even younger than me who had that sort of um, archaic sort of mindset of, you know, immigrants coming here to steal their jobs or were racist or like, 
you know, xenoph- like xenophobic, just really like archaic sort of like mindset that you would expect from someone of an older generation. So I don't think just because the boomers and older generations would die out within the next 20 years or so, I don't think that's going to make any changes because it's such, it's so ingrained within our system. Like what Amber was saying, like the four-year-old child who was raised by, you know, it's his, his parents would grow up to have that same mindset. So I think it, it's, it's, it, we have to start by sort of like tearing it all down and starting again. Cause I don't think that just killing off or well, not killing off, but like all those people like dying, um, is going to make any changes because we should, we'll still be living in that same system that was built, you know, years ago. So I just think again, like the whole idea of um, racism, the idea that racism isn't, we're never going to fully get rid of it. It's still going to be a reoccurring, popping up problem. And I think primarily it's going to be a reoccurring problem because again, it's got to be, it's something that's got to be unlearned. And there is the challenge of once it is learned, trying to sort of unlearn that ignorance and unlearn that that wrongful teaching. And that's why I think it's so important to be that we as people grow up in an environment where we are not exposed to that dangerous form of teaching. And um, unfortunately, if you are in that environment where you do have racist adults feeding you information, um, you are going to pick it up and you will internalize it and it will be ingrained as a form of your thinking about people in everyday life. And um, again, it comes back to education as well. Like we need to educate people more about, you know, um, exp- people's experiences of culture, again, sort of enriching culture, you know, and also decolonializing and deconstructing the whole a national curriculum as well the national curriculum is so problematic I've taught in a secondary school for one year and I was even though I was teaching English we were not teaching any texts that weren't part of the canon so we weren't teaching um, any black British texts Uh, we weren't teaching any Asian uh, Asian authors texts made by Asian authors Um, we weren't be the children were not being exposed to the language and culture of different ethnicities and different identities and that's really uh it for me it was disheartening and it also it's it's problematic in the sense that these children are going to think children that look like me children who are you know children of color are not going to be able to enjoy literature enjoy language because they're going to think that this is not for them because they can't identify with it um and i even when i went to university and i studied english we it wasn't until um i had an optional module on black british literature which i chose like african nigerian texts um that i could actually identify with my course because all i was being taught for the three years was uh shakespeare and um seamus heaney and um Robert Louis Stevenson, like canonical white British writers. And I could not connect with that because they were not writing about, you know, my experiences that I could relate to. And I think, you know, I remember there's one student in my class when I was teaching year 10 class who said, "Uh, Miss, I can't, I don't, I don't enjoy this. I can't relate to this at all. 
and I struggle to really kind of counter argue her point there because I completely agreed with her. Um, you know, she said, you know, this is literature is pointless. You know, there's no basis for literature. I don't need literature. And uh, I'm passionate about literature. And I said, no, go and read these texts. And I had to give her these texts, um, Maya Angelou texts and poetry. Um, you know, you've got the black authors, you know, American authors of the blues period, the 1920s period, you know, to go away and you have to compensate for that lack of um, education. You know, you have to compensate and you have to go out on your own and you have to research and discover, you know, texts and authors that you can relate to and, ins and be inspired by. So, yes, we need to deconstruct um, the curriculum and also in history. You know, you know, you're being taught, especially with transatlantic slavery. I remember being taught that in secondary school. Mm -hmm. And uh, my teacher was saying, oh, you know, that African identity and our knowledge of Africa started with the slave trade. And that made me really angry. And I said, no, our culture started way, way before that. Like I know in Nigeria, you have um, the Benin bronzes, which are currently in the British Museum. And uh, they are stolen. They're stolen artifacts from, from Nigeria. You're not talking about the richness and culture and, you know, actual sort of craft that went into the Benin Bronzes. It's completely overlooked. And we've just talked about how black people were colonized, how black people were taken and sold as slaves and they worked and they were dist distributed all over the globe, basically. And they, um, you know... Uh, you know, unfortunately, that's what happened. But Britain came in. They were the crusaders and the sailors. Yeah. You know, and they came in, and you know, they, they, you know, they, they started to invade and counter, counter, counter all the, um, you know, the Portuguese and the Spanish slave ships that were coming over. And in my mind, I was like, no, 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 no. You cannot start the slave trade, and you cannot disregard African history, its people and culture. And then claim white, you know, to be white saviors. And that, that's not okay. There's a significant time frame of history that's completely been left out and disregarded. Mm. And, you know, black, you know, black history started way before the slave trade. You know, being taught, you know, as a person of color, especially as an African, that, you know, your culture and your, the history that we're going to teach you about your own identity is only going to start with slave trade. It's again like dehumanizing, you know, black people, like dehumanizing yeah. all black people. The slavery was our own holocaust, if you may, you, you may say that. Mm -hmm. And like it, it angers me in the sense that we're taught so much in depth. We, we've learned so much in depth about the holocaust and how dehumanizing and detrimental that was to the Jewish people and it's really important that we learn about the holocaust but the slavery on the other hand is complete the slave trade and african history before that is completely overlooked and yes i do i do understand that as a 11 year old uh as a, a between the ages of 11 to 16 secondary school the graphical content of what actually occurred on board those slave ships is probably too graphical to understand and to you know to comprehend and i do get that but trying to overlook the significance of what uh black people how they contributed to the economic growth of britain and the industrial revolution that needs to be taught yeah i absolutely agree like i 
during Black History Month last last year, I was having uh, like a lot of conversations with people about the necessity to sort of sort of take it like sort of reconstruct it and start again because I do feel like growing up um, in Chai Sang Contested District, we went to the same school that a lot of the things that we learned were basically like Britain were always the good guys. They were the saviors. They're the ones that came in and fixed everything. The Americans were bad. They're the ones that did slavery. And they're the ones that, you know, like did this and that. And South Africa, oh my God, what a hot mess. Like, um, they're, they're so racist. And we came in and we fixed it. Do you know what I mean? There was always England, the UK was always like the, the ones that came in and, and, and taught people the right, the right way of doing things. And and, but we never learned about all the, the, the messy, like, sort of crap that the UK did. It was always positive. Um, even when we, we did study about the, the colonies of, of, of Britain, it was spun in such a positive way that you'd be sat there, you'd be like, oh, wow, so we had all these, like, different colonies everywhere. And and, 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 and do you know what I mean? It, they'd always spin it, like, uh, in such a positive way whenever we touched anything that sort of highlighted the destruction or the mess that they caused around the world. And I think that sort of teaching only instills sort of, like, the white supremacist sort of mindset into, you know, from, from kids from a young age, you know, you, you learn that, okay, so Black people were always property, Black people were uneducated, Black people were hectic savages, Black, do you know what I mean? You have this sort of ongoing narrative from the age of, like, eight upwards, you know, all the way through school, and then people start to think that way, and then the only time people think of, like, even Africa, it's like Oxfam, it's, you know, it's always, it's always, um, poverty and, and war and things like that and it's like there's more to these places than you know than the sort of negative connotation that it's that's that it's been pushed as you know what I mean like I'm I'm like you know I'm East African and I remember growing up and um people would always you know like queen Oxfam adverts and people like oh it's like your cousin like joking around like but it wasn't a joke to me it was to me it was very personal it was like that's offensive firstly it's racist and it's not true of the whole country because we can say the same thing here do you know what i mean we, we could put up a picture of a homeless guy and say oh this is the uk this is this is the whole of the uk this one homeless guy represents the whole of you do you know what i mean and it's 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 the way that i find the um the, the a lot of like europe and America and all these other countries have sort of uh, marketed themselves, you know, so that we are, like, we see it in beauty, we see it in so many different um, aspects of our life. Um, this push for Eurocentric beauty, this push for Eurocentric religion, this push for, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's so ingrained within our society and it's, it's almost like a cancer and I, we need, we need, we need to eradicate it because it's doing so much harm to 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 the whole world, you know. And yeah, I I couldn't agree more with you. And it starts with education, definitely. I, I think it's also just so interesting as well. Just to cycle back to your original question about being in in an interracial relationship, and I guess being the result of an interracial relationship mm -hmm. and what just what listening to everything and what it's like to 
reconcile that both of being, I guess, like the oppressed and the oppressor in one body and, and having those, that both those histories shared across your like personal identity and how you cope with that and how you deal with that and how you have that conversation with your parents. Um, you know, maybe you and your hubs have all of that choice to come. Um, but also, like, I can't, like, or I refuse, I refuse the narrative that I am the result of anything other than two people's perfect human ability to see each other as human beings, mm-hmm. worth loving, worth caring for, worth being with. Even if, like, you know, my parents still together, but even if, you know, your parents aren't for a moment, for a period in time, and you're you're the result, that, that's how they need each other. And and I I cannot and I won't I sort of refuse the narrative that like that my existence is a betrayal of either of either part of me or that my existence is collusion with the oppressor or that my existence is a, yeah it is anything other than people than the thing than the result of the thing that we are hoping for and striving towards mm. which is that we see each other for the brilliant and beautiful individual human beings that we are, including our race, including our history, including the good, the bad, the ugly. Because I just think otherwise, like, what you're asking me to do is is, is hate some part of me. And yeah. I had kind of enough of that growing up, where I was like, what feels like an innocuous question, which is, what do you feel more like? Like, you know, I don't know if anyone's asked you, do you feel like you're more black or like you're more white? The same thing, like, do you feel like you're more Filipino or like you're more English? And I and I knew that the way I was going to get treated by that person was contingent upon what, upon one, what answer I gave, even if that's not what they thought themselves. Because if I said, I think especially when I first moved back to this country as well, um, because the, for some people, the concept that anyone would want to leave to move to a third world, developing world country was like mad. Um, and also, like I had a choice in that, <laughs> in that move. Um, but also, so I think like, and you know, and I always felt the need to say, well, I suppose I spent more time in England, so I feel more English, but I've just, I have just come back. And like to explain, to feel the need to justify how you identify and why you identify the way you are is like mad to, to have to justify your experience to the people from your world, whether that's white or Asian or white and black, like, or, and actually to acknowledge that we're all here with like, that our mix includes whiteness, but there are so many now mixed ethnicities that don't include um, being white or white European. But also I just, I, I'm just so so bored of being told to pick a size. I just I'm not I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, and well, for me, a positive and I like and I guess like is that you should never have to justify who you are or how you exist or to or have people try to tell you what you are or what you should be. Like that idea of like I can understand a fear of. Like, why you, as a black woman, why would you want to share a roof with your oppressor? But also, I sort of feel like 
it's a demonstration and an example that it's absolutely possible for us to love each other and to see each other and to hold each other and protect each other and lift each other up um, in a way that embraces race, that it doesn't have to be rooted in like pain all the time. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it stems from, you know, like the way that when you look on in movies and things like that, um, how interracial relationships are sort of perceived on, you know, on, on screen. And it is always, the thing that always comes up is always like um, a race issue and things like that and that, but that's not all it is. And I think people forget that, like what you were saying, it's like you're two human beings that meet and have, you know, a love and understanding and similarities and things like that, um, which I think people don't, you know, don't realize or think about. Um, yeah, and it's, I've always, I've had this conversation with multiple people in recent times, probably because I have so much time in lockdown now, but um, also the question of thinking or talking about race. For me, it's just the most abstract thing ever because I learned early on that race is a social construct it's not scientifically differentiated we are of different ethnicities and we are as one the human race I remember reading this piece how we share uh, more um, genomes with a with a banana than a monkey shares with a rat for instance it was the most comical thing I've ever read but when I talk, when I think about how am I going to raise my children as, as my like who, what kind of culture will I inculcate in them? Like where are they going to be born? I'm someone who was raised in Portugal but was socialized by British people, you know. And although I feel cultural Portuguese and Portuguese is my first language, um, that language has deteriorated because I've lived for. Uh, I've lived for seven years now in Holland, you know, and although I'm on paper, I'm Dutch because I hold a Dutch nationality, my, um, my, like, my Dutch eloquence is not as highly developed as my English or my Portuguese. So I have this question, like, I have three different cultures residing in me, not necessarily two different races, but three different cultures with uh, a multitude of, like, complex heritages to discover or explore like how am I going to ever like uh, inculcate into my offspring who is most likely going to be a quarter Jamaican or because of the type of men that I fall for but also my current boyfriend who's fully Dutch like we are probably going to be together for a very long time and it is a question that I find very difficult to answer also because you were talking about the, having the uh, two opposing identities within one, the oppressor and the oppressed. I've always felt like a foreigner in any country that I've lived in. I felt like a foreigner in Portugal because I spoke with an accent. I felt different because I looked different, but I felt as an outsider because I also spoke like an outsider. I spoke like, an, like a foreigner, even though Portuguese was my first language. Um, I spoke both English and Dutch at home and I'm Dutch, but I speak Dutch with an accent and 
I'm English, but the way I speak English depends on what shows I've been watching, you know? And even though I have a family who lives in London and family that lives in Brazil and South Africa, it's, it's odd. It's odd to think about culture as this one homogenous thing based on a race or a language when it's so complex. And because that complexity lives within me as probably because I'm mixed race, it's something that I've never really been able or wanted to choose because I fear that choosing something will go be at the cost of a, better, a different potential. You know? And it's like one of the most complex things to ever wrap my head around. It's like, what am I? And I've never kind of, or who am I? I've never really tried to answer that a lot along racial lines because I find it a very abstract term. I prefer thinking about heritage and histories and traditions and uh, local cultures, perhaps, uh, as opposed to uh, global histories and features. Mm. I do know what you mean in terms of race and culture. Like, I think there is this misconception, especially online, with um, when people are talking about Africa, they always make it as if, make it seem as if it's just one place. Like, mm -hmm. oh, like Africa, it's just the one African culture. And it's like, there's so many different cultures, races, so many different, you know, there's so much history in Africa um, that you can't, there's no such thing as just African culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think Amber, like Amber's Nigerian, I'm East African, um, and even in East Africa alone, there's within that there are so many different cultures within Nigeria alone there's so many do you know what I mean like so many different cultures and I think um even even within my own family I was raised differently to some of my other cousins you know even though we were all a majority of us are Rundi's Ugandan um we were all raised differently like my like my household was very um we didn't we didn't follow the whole traditional sort of patriarchal setting. You know, my mom and dad were equals, 50-50. They did, you know, my both of them worked. They both did housework. Did you know what I mean? Things like that. And I'd have family come over and they would see that as weird. And I had a lot more freedom than some of my other cousins. And then on top of that, I have some cousins who are Muslim. I have some cousins who, who are Protestant, who are um, Methodist. Or, do you know what I mean? And then all of that sort of, it ties on to, you know, cultural backgrounds and things like that. Um, and did you have that sort of similar uh, thing growing up with the whole like race culture? Yeah. So even when I was young, um, like my mom made it very clear to me and all of my siblings that we were going to learn uh, Nigerian culture. We were going to learn how to cook Nigerian food. We were going to listen to Nigerian music. We were going to go to family trips to Nigeria. And, you know, we were going to be immersed in that culture because she didn't want me to grow up in Britain and sort of not be exposed to my Nigerian culture because I think at times it's, it's really easy to, you know, get sort of... Um, get caught up in like British culture and sort of neglect um like my African identity and I think I think one of the reasons why some people may neglect it is probably through no fault of their own but maybe they haven't been exposed to it 
as such and like because I was exposed to my Nigerian heritage and my Nigerian culture I was able to be fully immersed and knowledgeable about it and equally on my other side um, my dad and my grandma his mum made it very clear as well that I was going to be very knowledgeable about um, English culture as well so my nan took me and all my siblings we visited all the English national heritage sites we traveled all over the country and um, yeah so she made it clear that you know, we were going to see all the museums, we were going to see all the English heritage uh, sites. Um, she wanted Kenwood House, for example. She wanted me to be very knowledgeable in English heritage as well. And my grandma, I remember turning around to my grandma and saying, we were in um, an English heritage house and a marble house. And um, I remember reading about it and I said, oh, Nan, do you know that, you know, this house was owned by like slave slave traders basically and she said oh yes I know I, I do know that and it was sort of in a way it was interesting because she was talking about the beauty of the beauty of the tapestry and the marble and the ornaments in the house and part of me was thinking about the dark history of the house you know the money that came, you know was pumped in to make the beautiful tapestry and to have the beautiful marble so again there was a bit of conflict in terms of blending the cultures in that regard but um it with regards to like anything like you know not accepting racial culture and racial identity i didn't have that issue growing up in my family like both parties were equally as um as uh, accepting in that respect um but i do remember that a lot of the issues i've had with my identity is again what like shy says i feel like some people always try and cat categorize you you have to be this or you have to yeah. be that who's aside um but regards to um you know race again like i had a problematic incident where two years ago i was at a festival in the uk and um i met this white guy and remember he you know we were talking about culture and we were talking about heritage and I was telling him, you know, I'm, I'm half Nigerian, I'm half white. And he goes, oh, um, well, you have the privilege of being white and you have the sympathy of being black. And I paused and I was so, I was fuming inside. I was boiling inside because what he had just said to me was that, oh, I can feel sorry for you, that black, your blackness is something to be pitied we should pity your blackness your your worthless condition to be black uh but you have the privilege of being white so even though you're black and we should pity your blackness we you know you do have that privilege in some respects you know you you should be proud of your white heritage and your white yeah. roots and that was so that made me so angry we had like a war exchange of words and it was just his ignorance you know his ignorance and him trying to project you know his own superior superiority onto me and again try and categorize me and try and make me believe that you know i should strive direction you know my white side and it's incredibly problematic a passing comment like that almost comes from the person perceives themselves as being kind or relating or i understand what you're going yeah. through it must be tough being you but you've got me a friend like I am you're not alone in this and I find out like how do you argue with someone who doesn't know 
or how do you teach is it your is it your uh, are you in the position to teach someone who doesn't know any better and is there a possibility for that person to know any better it's just mind-boggling with regards to um categorization it is really frustrating when people try and categorize you as one or the other and sometimes when i when people have sought to categorize me i kind of feel othered and i kind of want to kind of remove myself from that situation i kind of want to say that i'm othered you know by white by black you know by your perceptions of me it's almost as though I kind of remove myself from my body in that in that instant just to escape that because a lot of the time I, I just don't want to, you know, be receptive in that conversation. I don't want to kind of engage in that conversation um, because no matter what I say, I think, Shai, you said this, no matter what you say, you're going to be judged and you will be categorised um, as one or the other, something or the other. Um but I think, you know, if somebody asks me, or, you know, what do you identify? Do you identify as black? Do you identify as being mixed race? You know, what do you identify with, a, you know, person of colour? I just say, oh, for me, I just say I, I am both white, I am both black, and I'm British. And I think, you know, I, I'm black British. If, you know, if we're taking it down, if we're mixing, I think, race with national national identity i would class myself as somebody who is black british but there was also that fear of um because i know that my grandma on my dad's side my dad's mom really wanted me to be immersed with my my white you know british english heritage so i didn't want to i, I didn't want to i wanted to tread lightly over how i would you know see myself because i didn't want to disregard her i didn't want to disregard her side um, because she'd made s such an effort to make me feel comfortable in that in in that element in that bubble as such, and um, so that's why you know if I if I said that I identified as black, I felt that I was disregarding my dad or I was disregarding my white heritage, and I felt like in a way I was I was harming him, I was causing harm to him, I was. Um, you know, disregarding and neglecting him. And um, even when I asked my dad, oh, you know, you know, dad, you know, what do you see me as? He said, I see you as my daughter. I see you as my child. I don't see, I don't see colour. And that's the difference. I think somebody who's not within that bubble or somebody who doesn't have that experience of one, I think either being married or being in a relationship with someone who is black um, or somebody who is, you know, not white, um, they're going to have a completely different perception of you. So with my dad, he's white, but he doesn't see me as being black, white, mixed race. He just sees me as Amber, his daughter, his child. But if I was to go, you know, and have a conversation with maybe one of his friends who are white, they'd probably cast me as, oh, mixed race, because, you know, they know my dad is white. But Again, categories, I think, are the number of times where somebody's sought to put me in a category. It's, it's always been from, you know, a white counterpart, by, from a white person. You know, oh, do you see yourself as more white or black? And I don't answer that question because, you know, I, I, I don't have a response for that. I, I see myself as, as being part of both equally. Um, but again, I think categorization comes down to order and... Um, maintaining that order and that structure you know if you're not 
positioned in a category, I think it can make somebody feel very uncomfortable. You know, you know, I want to categorize you as something. I want to identify you as being, you know, as such to make me feel comfortable engaging in conversation with you. It's like almost saying, well, if I can categorize you as this, then I can sort of, I know the boundaries of conversing with you, or I know the boundaries of what we can discuss and all of that. So I think, again, categorization comes down to structure and order and making people feel comfortable to be around you and kind of making it easy to navigate their way in, you know, in, in situations and environments where they may be, where a white person may be the minority. It makes them feel comfortable categorizing you. And that's why I'm so against categorization. Really, we should be coming together and molding together because really we, you know, we have to, in order to fight, you know, the stereotypes perpetrated at us as a black community, we need to unite as a whole to combat that. And we need to, as a black community, recenter and come together and we need to not be splintering. We kind of need to mold together. And so there is a lot of work, I think, that has to go into the black British community as itself to avoid that categorization. This is it's been it's been so good. Like just yeah. Getting you guys is like perspective and like your personal journeys and things like that. Um, I've learned so much today and um, I've really enjoyed this. You know, I had a good time. It was a lot of fun to explore this because it also helps me know what I do or don't stand for. And I like having these conversations where we kind of like bring different things to the table. So. Yeah, I loved it. No, definitely. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate being included in this because I'm also aware that sometimes, yeah, like, um, mixed racialness beyond being black and white is is not always talked about, and so I really appreciate being included in the conversation because yeah. it, yeah, it's a different. Like, there's so much we share, um, but also there are so many inevitable diversions. So it's been really, really nice to be able to kind of like talk it all out and and examine it and. And kind of do it in the context of the past year and the specific threat to Black lives. It's a, like and where all of us fit within that is really mm -hmm. good. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, everyone, for like doing this with me and being so patient. And um, yeah, we've been talking for like nearly three hours. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I had so much fun. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, guys, and I hope you have a great evening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking out This Is Important podcast. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at this underscore is underscore I-M-P-T. Thank you.